host, Brad Boyd. In this episode, we're looking at the rise of AI-enabled weapons in the war in Ukraine. Both Russia and Ukraine have used systems that suggest AI might be helping to identify targets, control flight, and coordinate action. What is less clear is whether AI has enabled Russia or Ukraine to employ some level of lethal autonomy, meaning a system can identify and engage targets without further human intervention once activated. The stakes in this conflict seem high enough to suggest that both sides have incentives to employ any and all weapons that will help them win, including AI-enabled weapons, but does either side have the capability? Certainly, Russia has been building and testing AI-enabled systems for at least 10 years, some of which have appeared in operations in Syria. It seems logical that these systems should appear on the battlefield in Ukraine, and perhaps they have. In March, Wired.com published an article entitled, Russia's Killer Drone in Ukraine Raises Fears About AI and Warfare. This title seemed to suggest that perhaps Russia had crossed the Rubicon and was the first to openly employ lethal autonomous weapons in war. The text of the article itself was more sanguine, suggesting that whether the weapons were operated remotely by a human or in fact autonomously seemed unclear. But the implication that Russia probably had, and certainly could, was apparent. My guest today is Greg Allen, Senior Fellow and Director of the AI Governance Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Greg has been studying AI-enabled military systems for years, including as the Director of the Strategies and Policy Division at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center in the U.S. Department of Defense. The Wired article caught Greg's eye and he decided to take a closer look. He began to review Russian and Ukrainian video footage to see exactly what had been found on the battlefield and how that could be corroborated with what is generally known about AI-enabled systems and what is specifically known about Russian AI-enabled systems. In this episode, Greg is going to lay out what he found and then we'll take a closer look at what those findings mean and why flooding the battlefield with killer robots might not be as easy as it seems. Welcome to the Octagon. Greg, how are things? It's good to catch up with you. Yeah, how's your uh, how's your life? I uh, you know haven't really kept track of you since you left Congress. Things are great. Life is good. I work at Stanford and do things like this podcast. How can how could you complain about that, right? Um, shall we jump right in? Cool. Tell me about the article you wrote recently on Russia's deployment of AI enabled systems in Ukraine. The main question that I had was something that I've been observing since my, even before my time in the DOD, which is how will AI enabled autonomous weapons find their way to actual operational use in wartime? And this is something that is obviously a a major topic of international conversation. The United Nations dialogues on lethal autonomous weapons have been going on for literally eight years now. And much of the inspiration for that work has been progress in AI and specifically in machine learning technology, where there is this dramatic expansion in the capability of autonomous systems that we're familiar with from autonomous vehicles. And that very much also has implications for autonomous weapon systems. So a tiny bit of history is important here. Um, Autonomous weapon systems do not have a formal definition in international law, but they do have a formal definition in Department of Defense policy. The relevant policy in question is called Department of Defense Directive 3000.09 or DODD 3000.09. And that policy defines an autonomous weapon system 
as a system that once initiated can select and engage targets without further intervention by a human operator. Um, what's sort of interesting about that definition is that it implies that certain types of autonomous weapons have been a part of not just the US military, but dozens of militaries around the world for decades now. Um, almost all cyber weapons systems, if they're going to attack uh, a cyber system that exists behind an air gap, like many um, really highly secure uh, nuclear facilities, for example, um, that requires that type of autonomous functionality. Similarly, a lot of missile defense systems, if they're worried about a swarm of missile attacks, have a fully autonomous mode. So the reason why I raise that is because it raises the question if, you know, some types of autonomous weapons are old and in widespread use, then what is potentially new and interesting? And that is twofold. One is the introduction of machine learning into this equation. So these are software enabled systems that where not every line of computer code was written by human hands, some were written by the machine itself based on what it learned uh, from a training data set. So that's thing one, the use of machine learning in the weapon system. And then the thing two would be an offensive uh, weapon system that has long duration autonomy. So if you think about a heat seeking missile, um, you know, it can, you know, there are types of uh, these missiles that are termed fire and forget or lock on after launch. And these types of systems have, uh, you know, a certain degree of autonomy, but it's only for a matter of seconds or minutes. And in practice, um, the, the, the actual nature of those systems really leads you to want uh, a human to only use them when they pretty much know what they're shooting at, um, even if there's going to be some time and space where the system is autonomous. So the reason why I give all of this background is because we are probably reaching that turning point that precedent of an offensive, long duration autonomy, machine learning enabled system um, right now. In fact, we could be reaching that moment in the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and there is a Russian weapon system, which the manufacturer claims um, has all of those features that I just described. And not only that, but the pressures on the battlefield with the more widespread introduction of jamming equipment um, are sort of aligning the incentives to move away from remotely piloted systems towards more autonomous systems. And that's really what, what got me interested is the fact that we could be reaching this threshold, uh, which folks have been talking about for the better part of a decade now. Yeah, I, I think that you are correct. And um, I don't know if I mentioned it before, the my class at Stanford is entitled Automation Autonomy and the Future of Warfare. So it's exactly this conversation from a lot of different directions. Um, and now that we're talking, I'm like, I should ask Greg to be a guest lecturer. So we can talk about that later. Um, so let's, let's clarify something, though, that AI-enabled weapons are not necessarily autonomous weapons. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that because I think, you know, the U.S. at least is probably using AI-enabled systems uh, to support Ukrainian efforts, which does not mean they're employing lethal autonomous systems or autonomous systems in any way. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
what we mean when, when we differentiate the two between a lethal autonomous system and just an AI-enabled system. Sure. And I think the, the right way to think about this is that there's a Venn diagram of AI-enabled and autonomous. And the, you can be AI-enabled without being autonomous. You can be autonomous without being AI-enabled, or you can be both. And it gets really, really confusing. Um, so to start, what does it mean to be AI-enabled? Um, in technical terms, right, if you talk to folks who are leaders in the field of AI, uh, what they will point out is that artificial intelligence is an umbrella term. Um, but it's an umbrella term with sort of moving goalposts. So if you think back to 1997, when Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, faced off against IBM's Deep Blue, a chess playing computer, um, at the time when Deep Blue defeated Kasparov in chess, that was heralded as a watershed moment in artificial intelligence uh, back in 1997. Today, the chess program on your phone would annihilate both Kasparov and uh, Deep Blue, but that system is no longer referred to as an AI um, in, in everyday English. It's referred to as merely software. Um, however, uh, it, it is in the sort of technical sense, it's, it's absolutely AI. Um, but AI is an umbrella term and the sort of two big fields within that are, is the intelligence coming from human experts who are programming their expertise into translating their expertise into lines of computer code, which would be like a rules-based system or a handcrafted knowledge system using traditional software. That's what IBM Deep Blue's AI was. Um, more recently, uh, the field of machine learning and especially one subdomain within machine learning, neural networks, has seen just an astonishing increase in performance over the past decade. And the difference between machine learning and traditional software, as I said before, is that machine learning, not every line of computer code is typed out by human hands. Um, some of it, in fact, a huge chunk of it, and the critical enablers of performance is what a learning algorithm has learned from a training data set and then produced an AI model, which is sort of the computer code that the system has programmed by itself based on what it has learned from the data. Um, and so while in technical terms, all of this stuff is AI, uh, something like the ground collision avoidance system, which has been around for many decades, you know, that's a that's a computer program on board uh, most U.S. fighter aircraft that can detect if they have pulled too many G's in executing a turn. And so they blacked out because all the blood has left their brain. Well, the computers on board these fighter aircraft can detect that blackout can seize control of the aircraft, fly it straight and level until the pilot regains consciousness and then hand back control over to that pilot. That type of technology has been a part of US military systems for many decades. It's super impressive, but it doesn't involve any machine learning. Um, and so in modern terms, most of the AI revolution of the, over the past decade 
really does relate to machine learning. If you're thinking about the explosion in the performance of facial recognition systems, that is because of the explosion in performance of machine learning. Um, similarly, uh, this is the same story in autonomous vehicles and all kinds of computer vision, speech recognition type applications. So in the DOD, when we talk about something being AI enabled, we're talking about it the same way Silicon Valley is talking about it, which is that this system uses machine learning and that training data was sort of the critical enabler of the performance of the system. Um, however, you know, a weapon system could be AI enabled in a bunch of different ways, right? Imagine you have the F-35 aircraft, right? Which is a trillion dollar program and each individual you know, aircraft costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, if they use machine learning to improve the performance of like one of the F-35's many, many, many sensors, um, does that mean that the whole F-35 is AI enabled? Uh, it's not really clear. Um, so while there is you know, the common usage of these terms, AI enabled is not defined in policy, whereas um, autonomous weapons functionality is defined in policy. And that is, as I said before, um, the capability to select and engage targets without further intervention by a human operator. Um, the reason why it's important to understand this is there's a lot of different ways that a weapon system could be autonomous. It could be autonomous in guidance and navigation. It could be autonomous in um, cyber defense. It could be autonomous in you know, fuel efficiency optimization, right? But from a DOD policy perspective, you can be autonomous in all of those ways and not be an autonomous weapon system. What makes you an autonomous weapon system from a policy perspective is the ability to select and engage targets without further intervention by a human operator. And that you can achieve with or without machine learning. Um, but it's really important to know whether or not a system uses machine learning because it changes how you develop that system, it changes how you'd operate that system, and it changes how that system might break or not perform as intended. Um, all of which are things that, you know, DOD policy needs to be super aware of. Uh, but actually, right now, they're the only policy statements around AI are on things like AI ethics and responsible AI implementation. There's not sort of formal um, thou shalts or, or policy processes uh, in the DOD, which is part of what we were working on uh, when I was at the Joint AI Center and when you were as well. Yeah. So let's let's break into your article a little bit um, with that context. So when we, when we say, you know, the difference, all, all this sort of cascade of what is AI enabled and when does it start verging into autonomy? So, you know, in your article, you mentioned a couple different systems, um, the Kubla, as well as the, um, uh, what's the Lancet, know, the Lancet. Yeah. Um, like you say, there could be some AI enabled like object detection kind of stuff going on there, or maybe some autonomous takeoff and landing capability or something like that. So, you know, give us a sense of uh, the Kubla and the Lancet of what these things are uh, and where you think they fall on uh, on this sort of scale that we're kind of defining out here and, uh, and, and their use in, in Ukraine. Great. So I think one thing that is helpful as uh, somebody who's analyzing open source information is that uh, Russian weapons manufacturers 
love to brag about how advanced and how lethal uh, their weapons technologies are. Uh, why? Because they're trying to sell them for export on the international market. So, you know, they go to various air shows around the world and try and persuade countries and militaries around the world to buy their weapon systems. And so they advertise all the different capabilities of this. Well, some of those weapon systems uh, and some of those uh, weapons manufacturers have been talking about capabilities that increasingly leverage artificial intelligence, that increasingly have autonomous and lethal autonomous functionality, and uh, are actually the same systems that are being deployed by the Russian military in the fight uh, in Ukraine. Now, the sort of frame of my article was, and the inspiration for that article was a piece that had appeared in Wired in March of this year, in which they had claimed that uh, a loiter munition, a unmanned drone, you, uh, manufactured by Kalashnikov, the same company that makes the AK-47, um, was in fact an AI-enabled lethal autonomous weapon and was being used in uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, I looked into these claims and unfortunately, it, it basically appears to be the case that the article was an error and that Kalashnikov's subsidiary that was working on this also makes drones for the agricultural sector. Um, and the article was uh, erroneously implying that these AI capabilities that existed for the commercial drones manufactured by this were also a part of the, the, the cube, as it's uh, called the KUB BLA, um, that the, the, the cube was a AI-enabled lethal autonomous weapon and being used in Ukraine. And so I investigated these claims and basically came to the conclusion that no, um, it is actually not AI-enabled for the selection engagement of targets. Um, its AI functionality is a lot more restricted and um, it is really best understood as a remotely piloted drone. Um, however, Kalashnikov also makes another drone which if it lives up to the claims in its you know, advertising and marketing materials is correctly understood as an AI-enabled lethal autonomous weapon. Um, and that weapon system is the Lancet, which is a, a loitering munition, which basically means it's a kamikaze drone. You can use it to surveil the environment or you can use it to attack targets in the environment. This is a system that Russia also used in Syria but an important thing to understand is that it has a remotely piloted mode and it has a lethal autonomous mode. Um, and right now uh, in the fight in Ukraine, this system is already being used operationally. Uh, but what we don't know is, is it being used exclusively in remotely piloted mode or is it being used in lethal autonomous mode? And the point that I make in the article is that as the United States, you know, and other countries are supplying Ukraine with a great deal more jamming equipment and specifically counter drone jamming equipment. Well, the nice thing about that stuff is that it severs the link between the remote operator and the drone, which most drones just will either return uh, to their operator or automatically land when they are uh, have their communication link severed. But the point here is that according to the manufacturer, 
you know, the KUB BLA, sorry, not the KUB BLA, the Lancet um, has the ability to continue its mission in a lethal autonomous mode. Um, and that means uh, that as jamming equipment becomes more widely spread, the temptation on the part of the Russian military to engage that lethal autonomous mode is obviously going to go up. Yeah. It, so this is where I kind of want to delve into. I think that you're right. Temptation, the conditions are there. Um, the uh, I think there's a lot of incentive to to do this. Let's talk about what prevents them from doing it what, or what might be delaying them. Maybe prevent is too strong a word. What might be delaying Russia from employing some of these systems? Uh, because it's, as you and I both know, building and fielding something that functions in an environment as chaotic as the war in Ukraine is really, really hard to do. Sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm well aware that you have a lot of firsthand knowledge here. So I'll get us started and then, you know, feel free to jump in anytime. Um, so the thing to understand here is that machine learning systems, as I said before, are programmed by applying a learning algorithm to training data. So what is training data? Um, the most common example of this is uh, in images, you need the raw image data plus a tag or a label or some kind of correct interpretation of what that data is. And then you need a lot of that. So for an image recognition AI system that wants to you know, recognize faces, if you want to build a halfway decent facial recognition system, you know, you're talking thousands, tens of thousands, or millions, or tens of millions of faces, right? Depending on what the application is and what the level of reliability and performance you need is. Um, and, you know, that imagery needs to pretty closely resemble the operational environment, right? So if you want to build an AI system that is going to analyze uh, satellite imagery and tell you whether or not there's a tank in that satellite imagery, well, you can't give it 10 million images of faces, right? It, it needs the right kind of data for it to successfully train on. And you can't, in most cases, you can't just give it the raw data, right? You need to give it labeled training data, which means that a human has gone through all of that data and has actually said, okay, in this satellite image, this is the part of the image that contains a tank and it specifically contains this type of tank. Um, now, some of what I'm been, I've been saying is less true. Uh, it, like, like the technology is changing quite quickly. And so there's opportunities to apply techniques like transfer learning, which sort of diminish the difficulty of, of, of everything we're talking about here. But the, the fundamental points I'm making uh, remain true. So what Russia needs in order to build a you know, high-performing uh, lethal autonomous weapon system is it needs you know, labeled training data of imagery that resembles the type of imagery that the Lancet drone collects. Um, now, what it has, right, is whatever that they were working with while they were developing the Lancet drone, it's been in development for years now, and then because they've been operating it in a remotely piloted mode uh, in both Syria and Ukraine, you know, that stuff is now all up for grabs as training data if they want to um, use that to develop an AI model that can identify targets automatically. Um, 
none of this is easy. But what we have seen in uh, the conflict in Ukraine is how when you really are, when you really do have your back against the wall um, and it really is a top priority and you have top talent, um, you can do some pretty interesting stuff pretty quickly. Uh, the Ukrainian forces have talked about their use of AI to detect uh, Russian weapon systems um, that are camouflaged in forests. And, uh, like, you know, at least according to interviews with these folks, um, just in a matter of months, right, they have created stuff that can analyze drone-based imagery and radically improve um, the ability of uh, these drone surveillance systems to uh, catch these targets. But those are, those are systems that are um, recommending to humans uh, what to look at within an image, which is a much easier task than getting it, uh, getting it right and then independently taking action um, as a autonomous weapons system. Um, the last thing I'll say is, you know, whether or not this makes sense for you to do um, kind of depends upon what the consequences of failure are and how much you care about those consequences. You know, right now, the United States could deploy hundreds of thousands or millions of autonomous cars on the road all over America. Um, the point is that there would be crashes if America did that. But if we didn't care about those crashes, we could do it right now. Um, and the, the same is true of lethal autonomous weapons systems. Um, U.S military safety and testing and evaluation standards are incredibly rigorous. I mean, you really have to prove that your, your system is going to work as designed, as intended in realistic operational conditions before you're allowed to be put in the hands of a soldier. Um, it's not clear at all that Russia has the same paradigm. When they were using the Lancet in Syria, they referred to it being used in lethal strikes as testing. Um, the same is true for what they're doing in Ukraine. So, you know, they may just care significantly less if this thing accidentally kills a lot of innocent civilians or perhaps even kills their own forces. Um, that might be a price they're willing to pay uh, for, you know, a faster pace of innovation. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's what's so compelling to me is that I don't think that they would care about having a model that is as performant. Uh, as, say, a Western military, specifically the U.S., might require. And this is why I, I, you know, I think it's such a compelling question. Okay, well, why aren't we seeing them? Why isn't it making an effect on the battlefield? And I think that's where a lot of the other considerations come in, especially when, like you said, you started talking about data and, uh, you know, you've studied this. So let me ask you if, you if you've been able to determine this. In my experience, Electro-optical and IR, infrared, full motion video, these are terms of art, but basically video cameras, you know, looking at things, whether it's on the IR spectrum or just normal visible light, full motion video spectrum, the, the performance of those models is not great. And you really only get to something that works well when you have a multimodal type of sensing system that also makes use of uh, electromagnetic spectrum in different ways. And so what I suspect is partially giving the Russians problem with data collection. There's a lot of things that I think they're having problems with on data collection. But one of the things is that I'm not sure they have 
better sensors than essentially what's available commercially. And I don't think what's available commercially, whether it's commercial satellite imagery or their own military imagery, it's just not good enough to get a model that performs well enough, even for the Russians. Um, and I and there's other things that we can go over too, but let me throw that at you first and see if you think that uh, that, that holds water or if they have the, the ability to collect better data and it's, just, and it's something else that's holding them back. Well, you know, to your first point, right, about can these systems perform sufficiently reliably without multiple types of sensors and multiple AI algorithms analyzing the data coming off those sensors? I mean, that's an active debate in the commercial autonomous vehicles industry, right? You have companies like Google's Waymo, which uh, is really reaching the conclusion that you you need a LiDAR sensor on top of the vehicle to augment what the you know regular um, cameras uh, are, de- are detecting. And it's really the combination of those two systems that gives them the confidence to let the system go uh, autonomous. Tesla, as a just a different engineering philosophy and is making a different bet on the technology. They really are going all in on regular optical cameras um, and AI models on there. I mean, now in principle, right, human drivers basically just rely on our two eyes. So if you get the performance high enough in principle, right, you, you have the capacity for autonomy. Um, it's just a, a tough engineering challenge uh, to get there with something with the reliability to hit, uh, you know, what you would need to feel confident um, putting it in uh, a soldier's hands or, you know, a, a pilot's hands. I think the the question is, what does it really look like in wartime? Um, and in this particular war, I think it's really important to remember cost is a factor here. So the U.S. has certain types of reliability standards for its missiles, which are dependent upon one, you know, how uh, intolerant we are as a military of uh, unintentional civilian casualties and of friendly fire. And also, you know, how much, how precise we want it to be for the, the war fighting effect. Um, it really matters, right, that you hit the target and not hit 10 meters away from the target. And those types of technical performance requirements are really expensive to hit. The Tomahawk cruise missile um, can fly hundreds of miles and can hit a target to within an accuracy of, you know, a few meters. Um, But it costs $1.5 million per shot. I mean, that's really, really expensive. I think perhaps the most miraculous thing about loitering munitions, which are essentially just kamikaze drones, is how cheap they can be. the Ukrainians are retrofitting uh, commercial drones and adding to them uh, what are essentially anti-tank grenades that were originally designed for human use, but they figured out how to um, use AI to assist the targeting so that they can be put on a drone. So we're talking a combined, you know, $1,000 drone plus a $100 grenade that can credibly take down a $3 million tank. Right. And the reliability standards that you require um, when your system costs only a thousand dollars per shot are very different from the reliability standards that you require when it costs a million dollars per shot. So in that sort of why do I think the Ukrainian conflict has a decent chance at being the first use of AI enabled autonomous weapons? It's the combination of the battlefield incentive 
of drones facing much denser networks of jamming uh, than they have in pre previous conflicts, combined with the fact that um, the systems are now cheap enough and have enough battlefield utility um, that low reliability might be acceptable, especially if you're the type of force like Russia, where you don't care a lot about civilian casualties. Yeah, that's interesting that you um, think that Ukraine might be even first. Um, let me throw this at you. I, I, I do I do doubt that Ukraine would be first. Um, I, what I was pointing at specifically is that there is uh, an AI-enabled uh, drone capability, but it's used for deciding where to put the drone when the remote operator says attack that target. So it's used for aiming. It's not used for selecting and engaging targets, but it is an AI enabled weapon system. It's just not an autonomous system that the Ukrainians are currently using. Right. It, what I think happens is what you run into with a lot of these sort of cheaper systems um, is that cheaper systems are small, which is kind of why they're great. But when you try to get a system that can locate select and then engage targets without further human intervention, you know, the DOD definition, you start running into problems with size, weight, and power. And in order to power the systems, the onboard systems that can, you know, control the, you know, manipulate the control services, run the optics, uh, and, and compute all of the stuff inside the brain to make it fly around and do that it starts to get pretty big and pretty heavy and use lots of power. And I'm, this is why I think that I'm not sure we're going to see a fully autonomous system that is terribly small first off until we can get solve some of that size, weight and power issue, which leads me to think that, you know, some of these systems like the Lancet and the, you call it the cube. Is that the, the term? Yeah. That's the, the Russian pronunciation is the cube. Okay. Um, they're too small to be fully autonomous in a, in any meaningful way. They can do certain things, but I suspect that they're just not big enough to have all the compute on board that it needs to do all the things that it it would have to controlling sensors and processing the data and all this stuff. So your your point about onboard compute and the size, weight, and power implications is a super astute uh, point to be making. So you know AI algorithms. Uh, and using machine learning tend to have really beefy computational requirements. And uh, one of the main ways you get around that is by having specialized processors, uh, most common in commercial industry, uh, GPUs, graphical processing units, which are a little bit more optimized for the requirements of AI. And um, so one thing that I'll be super interested to see is as Western analysts and Ukrainian forces start analyzing the internals of some of these downed Lancet drones, um, one of the things that I'll be very interested to see is, do they have GPUs on board, right? Um, because what I've been going off of, as I said before, is really the manufacturer's claims about the performance of the system. But some of that could just be marketing hype. They could be talking about stuff that they would love to upgrade the system later to do, but maybe they can't actually do it right now or they can't actually do it right now um, with any great performance. You know, the Lancet claims a uh, flight time of 40 minutes and 40 minutes is actually pretty good. I mean, obviously they are using this to take down systems in a remotely piloted mode just as um, 
just as uh, the Ukrainians are using uh, kamikaze drones to uh, in, a re- in a remotely piloted mode to kill enemy hardware. Um, so it's obviously possible that these systems, you know, can uh, be effective on the battlefield in, with all of their um, size, weight and power limitations. Uh, but the point that you you rightly raise is that's when they're operating in a remotely piloted mode. How do those considerations change, right, once you bring on the size, weight, and power requirements for operating uh, in an AI-enabled autonomous mode? Yeah, interesting. And, you know, the other thing that makes me wonder as well is, you know, we talk about, well, the Russians probably don't have uh, the same requirements for performance level in the models uh, to, to field it, is let's talk about brittleness in AI and adversarial AI. And just, you know, one of the things that uh, it's I usually throw out to people is like, hey man, you know, you might have a $1 million autonomous weapon flying drone or something, and that's great. That's pretty cheap. That's pretty good. Um, but if I can spoof its object classification algorithm by putting a piece of yellow electrical tape on the top of my tank, then I'm winning, right? Because I just spent five bucks to spoof your million dollar uh, object classification algorithm. Um, can you talk a little bit about brittleness and adversarial AI and sort of how I, you know, explain how I got to where I, or what I just explained there and what that means, uh, when we're talking about these types of systems? Yeah. So I think there's, there's sort of a couple of things to, to get at here. One is, you know, any system, whether it's using traditional software or whether it's using, uh, modern machine learning software has failure modes, right? Uh, traditional software can absolutely break. It can absolutely crash. Anybody who's ever used a computer has had the experience of their, you know, some application or other crashing. Um, I think the the point from a military perspective is that the DOD has extremely mature processes for detecting the types of bugs or failure modes that exist in traditional software. And by comparison, um, there's just a lot less muscle memory and institutional knowledge, and even some unsolved basic research questions about the failure modes of machine learning systems. Um, So it's not just that uh, they can break, it's that they break in weird and different ways from traditional software that we have less institutional experience to test in advance, to detect in advance, and to prevent. So all of that gets to like, how reliable is your system compared with the reliability that you need, you know, for the application that you're planning on using it for? Um, You know, if your system only costs a dollar, right? Well then hitting, like like think about bullets. Um, There's a lot of studies that point out that uh, the US military oftentimes fires thousands or tens of thousands of bullets uh, per enemy killed in action. Um, but you know, those bullets are really, really cheap. Um, so it's okay, right. That they're actually, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, achieving the mission, right. at a really, really, really low rate. So that gets back to the, to the drone systems. What is the effectiveness compared with the cost and how does that compare to alternative means of achieving the same mission? Um, the second thing that you were getting at was, you know, not just the, ways that it can have an accident, but also the ways that an adversary can force it to have an accident. Um, And I think part of this is vaguely analogous to the challenges of cybersecurity. 
um, in the exact same way that it's a really bad idea to let your adversary have access to your source code, it's also a really bad idea to let your adversary have access to your training data, um, which might give them, you know, means of uh, injecting specific failure modes that they can exploit later um, into your system. Um, in, in terms of, you know, what that actually looks like on the, the battlefield today, um, we haven't seen too much evidence of AI-specific spoofing. Um, but that's because, you know, every technology, uh, you know, iteration in military technology is a move, a strategic technology move that will beget counter moves. So as the Ukrainians are now bragging about their success in using AI to detect camouflage to military hardware, well, obviously, the incentive of Russian military forces to come up with AI-specific countermeasures also increases. And so we haven't really seen, you know, what the counter move is here. Um, but if it keeps working on the parts of the Ukrainians, right, you can bet that you, the Russians are going to start working on their, their counter move. Yeah, and I think that brings up uh, another interesting point about the sort of Russian predicament, if you will, and that is this the sort of data pipeline and the software updating pipeline. I I suspect that the Russian military does not have the infrastructure in place to allow enough ingestion of new data and curation of that data and then fielding it back to any sort of autonomous system that would allow a Russian autonomous system to stay relevant for very long on the battlefield because they just can't get the updates out to it fast enough. And this is almost like a, you know, another sort of logistics supply kind of issue for warfare. You know, how fast can you ingest new data, turn it into curated labeled data, uh, get it on the model uh, and, and out you go and put it back in the field so that it's not being fooled or it's, you know, adjusting its effectiveness and so forth. Uh, have, have you taken a look at sort of that Russian infrastructure to enable sort of a, a uh, I guess we call it a sustained AI presence on the battlefield? And do they have that infrastructure or is it, it too uh, primitive? Well, I think one question in all of this is, you know, what conditions are you willing to tolerate as you seek to uh, deploy AI. So, for example, um, you know, when you and I were working in the DOD, um, all of our activities were in line with DOD cybersecurity requirements, which means that there are really, really stringent uh, requirements that you have to meet if you want to connect anything to the DOD network or you want to do anything with DOD network data. And all of that stuff is designed to, you know, keep the United States military safe from um, adversarial, you know, cyber attackers. But it does kind of slow down the speed of uh, establishing these data pipelines and developing new software updates or deploying new machine learning models. If you're willing to play way more fast and loose and ride on top of commercial infrastructure, well, surprise, surprise, you can move way, way faster. And that is the entirety of the story of how the Ukrainian military has successfully been able to field AI models, right, in a matter of weeks and months um, compared to, you know, the typical DOD software update timeframe. Uh, and this is, you know, publicly available studies, right, is routinely years 
right, to get out software update upgrades to major weapon systems. Um, so if you're willing to, you know, operate under a different model with a different cybersecurity risk posture, you can definitely move a lot faster. Um, one other, you know, point of comparison I'll, I'll, I'll reference is the Turkish-built Bayraktar TB2 drone. Um, in a really interesting uh, interview with the New Yorker, the you know CEO of Bayraktar has basically said every single week of this war, um, Bayraktar has been fielding software updates to the TB2s that are actually flying in Ukraine, and that's based on. Um, you know, what is actually happening in the fight in Ukraine. And that's because they have this connectivity and infrastructure um, whereby Bayraktar is still involved with those TB2 drones, regardless of where they are sold. Um, and so whether or not that exists and for which Russian weapon systems, um, I don't know. But if they were, if they had the relevant talent to do so, and they were willing to adopt a certain kind of a risk posture, um, I suspect they could move quite fast. So we're we're coming up on time. So let me ask you this, Greg, to sort of get it all back together. I, one thing, you know, you talk about, hey, they might put these, you know, there's incentive to put these systems out there uh, in the future. One thing that I think is an interesting question is how will we know? How do you know if what just blew up that artillery piece was a lethal autonomous weapon system or whether it was human operated. And it, it kind of leads into sort of larger questions as far as uh, policing, uh, you know, agreements between states about how they use lethal autonomous weapons and so forth. But is there evidence on the battlefield? Is there a way to know when Russia has used a fully autonomous weapon system? Or is it just something that we're going to have to kind of piece together and make our best guess or Russia is going to have to tell us or what? Yeah, this is a, a genuinely really important question and not an easy one to answer. Um, you know, I've been saying that I think there is a decent chance that this is the conflict, right, where we cross the threshold and we see wartime use of offensive machine learning enabled autonomous weapons. The reality is we may have already passed that threshold and we just don't know it. Um, the detection you know, that we would have to see in order to detect this, we would really have to be looking for it with some rigor or the Russians would have to brag about it um, because they wanted to sound scary and formidable. Um, so in the past, you know, Russian weapons manufacturers have really been eager to talk about how their systems are being used in Ukraine. They've been really eager to talk about how they're incorporating machine learning uh, into their weapon systems. Um, but given that the fact that this is like an active subject of debate at the United Nations and a really contentious international political issue, um, it's possible that on this specific point, they would have a strong reason to be quiet. So maybe they won't tell us um, if they go past this threshold. So that then, you know, leads, okay, how would we detect that they were doing it? Um, and I've thought some about this, and I'm sure there's aspects of this that I'm missing that I haven't thought of yet. But one thing that comes to mind is if we see a drone system like, a, like the Lancet behaving in a certain kind of a way, um, and then we turn on a bunch of jamming equipment and in order to sever the communications link between the system and its remote operator, 
um, and it still continues the mission and still continues uh, to make the strike. So that would be helpful in establishing that the system is being used as an autonomous weapon. Um, but even then, right, you would have the question of, well, was it actually using autonomous behavior to select and engage targets and to find targets that it didn't know about until after the remote link was severed? Or was it just flying to pre-programmed coordinates, uh, you know, the same way many U.S. precision guided munitions do via GPS? Um, so even, you know, in that sort of event, I, 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 that hypothetical event I was talking about where we turned on the jammers and we're, we're seeing it continue to, to go after targets, there still would be some questions. Um, all I can really say here is that I hope, you know, the U.S. intelligence community and the Ukrainian forces um, are on the lookout uh, for this type of event. Um, but they've also got plenty of other things on their plate, um, like winning the war. So it wouldn't surprise me, right, if, if this happened and they, they didn't catch it. Um, like I said, it's a, it's a really tough problem and um, one that I don't have a great answer as to whether or not we'll know. Thanks, Matt. This has been great. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be on the podcast. And uh, thanks for a great conversation. Thanks for listening. We've been talking to Greg Allen, director of the AI Governance Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and we'll see you next time on the Octagon Podcast. Thank you.